This is Paris. This is Chuck T. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. Think about it. That's the way it was, was, and that's the way it is, and it's always changing, and it is always the same. The same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. I am a traveler. A wonder. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The world is listening. is Corey Doctoro. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an MIT Media Lab Research Associate, and a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University. He's an award-winning New York Times bestselling novelist. And today we're going to be talking about one of his new books, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. And he also just came out with a newer book, the Lost Cause, a novel of truth and reconciliation in our polarized future set 30 years into the future, dealing with climate change and the people who still refuse to accept change. Corey, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for that lovely introduction. So with all the dystopian concerns of surveillance capitalism, AI run amok and the hijacking of our attention, you spell out a far more basic concern or general concern about the current state of the internet, that when the internet came on the scene, it was actually an amazing meeting place of ideas and an almost utopic level playing field. What has happened to the internet since then? And how does that affect us as users? And what do you mean 
by the term the internet con? Hmm. Those are excellent questions. I'm going to answer the last one first, which is that internet con was my editor's idea. I called this book Seize the Means of Computation, a big tech disassembly manual. And he was like, I don't think that's going to sell. So he came up with internet con. I'm damned if I know what it means, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> probably I shouldn't be telling people. But honestly, you'll have to ask him. Uh, I will tell you that I think that it wasn't inevitable that we would end up with the internet that we have today, what, what Tom Eastman memorably called five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. That came out of a bunch of policy choices where we decided to let tech companies concentrate themselves down to this small handful of firms that have so much control over what we do, primarily by you know buying their competitors and by using what economists call predatory pricing to keep other rivals out of the market. So that's when you sell things for less than you charge for them. Think about how Uber was uh, losing 41 cents on every dollar they made for the first decade and a half and using money from the Saudi royal family, about $31 billion to keep people from starting rival taxi companies because they, they would have to lose money at a faster rate than Uber was in order to compete with them. And you know that arrangement where we let these companies buy their competitors, where we let them do predatory pricing, produced a, a very concentrated industry, an industry where even though they may seem to be rivals, they're really where it matters collaborators. They, they really all believe in the same stuff in, in big tech land, namely that you shouldn't have anywhere else to shop and that they shouldn't have unions and that there shouldn't be any privacy law and that they should have the final word as to how the technology you use is actually used when you use it. And so, you know, back in the old days when these companies were competing, it was really common for people who were locked in, in kind of abusive relationships with a single tech platform to have a rival come along and offer them a better deal. So like when Apple was getting its butt kicked by Microsoft, because Microsoft owned 95% of the operating system market, but also owned Microsoft Office, which is, you know, how everyone was collaborating, you know, with Word and Excel and PowerPoint. Microsoft had this really dead simple strategy to make people not switch from a PC to a Mac, which is they just made the Mac version of Microsoft Office so bad that if you switch to a Mac, you wouldn't be able to talk to your PC using friends. And so that meant that if you were in an office environment or if you were a freelancer and your clients were using PCs, you just couldn't use a Mac. And so the way Apple resolved that was by reverse engineering Microsoft Office and making a product called iWork, which you probably know as Pages, Numbers, and Keynote. And through iWork, you were able to take any Microsoft Office file and use it perfectly on the Mac. And then you could make files on your Mac that anyone could perfectly use on a Windows machine. And that was so powerful that people started to switch on mass to the Mac and it saved Apple's bacon. Today, now that Apple is a $3 trillion company, they kind of agree with Microsoft that no one should be allowed to do that. And they're very aggressive about using a whole package of laws that have emerged since those days in the early 2000s to sue or intimidate any company that might try to do unto them 
as they did onto Microsoft. And Microsoft does the same, and so do all the other major vendors. And so that means that you're kind of stuck where you are. Whereas, you know, people who got sick of MySpace and wanted to go to Facebook back when Facebook was saying, hey, we're like MySpace, except we're not owned by the evil billionaire Rupert Murdoch. And what's more, we'll never, ever spy on you. Facebook is the place you go to if you want to talk to your friends and never be spied on. You know, they didn't have to wait for their friends to move from MySpace to Facebook in order to make that move themselves. Facebook just gave them a bot. And if you gave that bot your login and your password, then it would go to MySpace several times a day, impersonating you, get all the messages that your friends there had sent to you, and just bring them into Facebook so that you could reply to them there. And then it would push them back out to MySpace. Again, anyone who tried to do that to MySpace today would be, you know, reduced to a radioactive crater by lawsuits from Facebook. Because, you know, what was sauce for the goose, as far as they're concerned, should never be sauce for the gander. And that's how we end up in this situation where people go to these platforms, they don't like them, they don't want to stay there, they can't convince all their friends to leave, and even if they could, they can't convince their friends where they should go next. And so everyone ends up just hanging out, staying in the place where they are, even though none of them like it. And if we could restore some of that dynamism by enforcing competition law and also by undoing the regulatory capture and forcing companies to let their users go, to let them have these tools that make it easy to go from one service to another and switch the way Apple did, the way Facebook did, we could go a long way to making these companies better and to, if they won't get better, making them extinct. So of course that begs the question of how we change things and, you know, essentially seize the means of computation, quote unquote, as you say, from these massive, powerful corporations. But could you talk about the ideology behind all of that, that kind of gives them carte blanche to do this and how we as a culture have kind of drunk the Kool-Aid about the kind of capitalist exceptionalism behind all of that? Yeah, I think it's multi-part. So there's an ideology that took over our regulatory apparatus, our government. And then there's an ideology that took over critics of big tech as well. And you have to understand both to really understand what's going on here. So in the days after the first antitrust laws were passed, back in the tail end of the 19th century, the thing that competition enforcers were worried about is that if companies got too big, they would become too big to fail and too big to jail, that they would become ungovernable. And so even if you thought, oh, well, this company is doing okay right now with its monopoly or with its market dominance, that eventually they're going to be tempted to do something rotten. And if they're this big, if they're so big that, you know, they can outspend the U.S. government, you know, when, when IBM was hit with its antitrust lawsuit in 1970, it embarked on a, a program of spending that involved outspending the Department of Justice antitrust division on lawyers that they used to fight the DOJ with. They outspent them every year for 12 consecutive years. They spent more on lawyers to fight the DOJ than the DOJ spent on all the lawyers it had on all the cases it was pursuing. And, you know, they called this antitrust Vietnam. And in the end, they, they waited at the DOJ long enough that Reagan was elected and he dropped the case and they, they wriggled off the hook. And so this was the thing that, you know, anti-monopoly law really concerned itself with. And there was this huge sea change in the Reagan era, starting with a judge called Robert Bork, who's most famous for having really badly flubbed his confirmation hearing 
when Reagan tried to put him on the Supreme Court. If you've ever described something as being so screwed up that it was borked, that's what you're referring to. It's this this old term from those days. And Bork, although he never got on the Supreme Court, he had this idea that if you saw a monopoly in the wild, that the most likely explanation for it was not that it had done something illegal or unjust, but rather that it was so good that people just preferred it. And it would be wild for the government to say, well, here's this company that's doing everything right, we should punish them. And so instead, unless you could prove a monopoly was somehow harming what he called consumer welfare, you know, by making prices go up or quality go down, you should just leave them alone. And that moreover, you know, proving that that consumer welfare harm was not a straightforward matter of just saying, okay, well, you know, you, you've got a monopoly and now prices are going up and quality is going down. We're going to do something about it. Instead, it was this idea that you had to mathematically prove it, you had to prove that the reason that prices were going up wasn't because of a supply chain shock or, you know, because the moon was in Venus or whatever, but because the company was doing something wrong. And, you know, almost no one could build or understand those models that they used to make these proofs that came out of the University of Chicago, which is kind of the birthplace of Reaganomics. And there were these guns for hire there who would make these models for corporations. And somehow, if you paid one of these guys to make a model to assess whether or not your merger was bad for society, they would always show that, like, no, that merger was quite good and that the people who paid them were really swell eggs who were doing the right thing and we should just leave them alone. And since they really had a monopoly on, on building and understanding those models, they got to rule the roost. And so that was one part of how we got these monopolies was that we just stopped enforcing anti-monopoly law. And it's a bit like, you know, we stopped putting down rat poison and then we got a lot of rats and, you know, we could reach to some pretty exotic explanations for how that happened. But, you know, there's a pretty straightforward one that maybe we should start with, which is that maybe the rat poison worked. And maybe if we put down more rat poison, it would work again. But, you know, on top of that, we then have the critics of big tech who observe these companies that are buying their way to dominance and using predatory pricing. They look at a company like Google, you know, which has grown to 90% of our search market share and has become the major source by which we get all of our data. And they say, oh, well, look at Google. Google says that the way that they're so profitable is because they're using data, all this surveillance data they capture on us so efficiently that advertisers just prefer them as opposed to, you know, they have a monopoly on advertising. And so, you know, they, they don't want to look at Google and say, well, here's a company that made one really excellent product 25 years ago and then everything else they've made in-house since, almost without exception, has been a failure. You know, their video product that they built in-house failed and their RSS readers and their social media networks, they've all failed. And, you know, their successes are all companies they bought from someone else. You know, their successful video company is not the one they made in-house. It's YouTube, which they bought from someone else who was, you know, smarter than them. And their ad tech stack and their mobile stack and their server management, all of this stuff, these are companies they bought from someone else. They're, you know, not Willy Wonka's ideas factory. They're, they're just like rich uncle penny bags. They're buying other people's ideas and, and mobilizing them and making a lot of money from them. And so we instead, we ascribe to them the same powers they claim for themselves when they go to advertisers and they say, hey, you're asking me why you should pay a 40% premium to advertise on Google? Well, I'll tell you why. I don't know if you've heard our critics, but they'll tell you that we are dopamine hacking evil sorcerers who can sell anything to anyone with big data and not just monopolists who have a lock on the market 
and who can use that lock on the market to oversell our products. And so you know, now we have these antitrust lawsuits against Google. They've dragged up in front of the DOJ. And you know, the DOJ is looking into Google's business practice and they find Google is spending 25 plus billion dollars every year to be the default search engine everywhere you go and that they're bribing companies like Microsoft and Apple not to start their own search engines because they just don't want you to ever try something better. And you know, that is a much better explanation for why everyone uses Google than this mind control ray explanation, especially given that everyone who ever invented a mind control ray was either lying to themselves or lying to everyone else from, you know, Rasputin to the CIA with MK Ultra, they were all full of it. And you know, this much more kind of everyday workaday explanation that Google is a mediocre monopolist that uses access to the capital markets to make sure that you don't have any choice and to capture your regulators. That's one that is only now catching hold after many years of people signing up to propagandize Google for them by adopting Google's own explanation for their dominance. So once again, it appears that capitalism just brings out or tends to bring out the worst in at least some of us. And especially in, in the business world, particularly when you get into these corporations that run on a business model of profit for the shareholders and in the process can completely sweep under the rug or out of view the issues of how it might affect real people in the world. Yeah, you know, I think that this is true, right? That profit motives are a way to bring out the worst in people. But I think when we look at the earlier years of the internet, the old good internet, and the reason to do that is not for nostalgia. As John Hodgman says, nostalgia is a toxic impulse. In studying the old good internet, the point should be to figure out how to build a new good internet. Because, you know, as someone who has found lots of benefit from the internet, both in my personal life, but especially in my political life, I used to spend nighttime cycling around my hometown in Toronto with a bucket of wheat paste and some Xerox flyers trying to get people out to, you know, anti-war demonstrations. If you don't think that the internet is an important force for social justice, I got a bicycle and a bucket of wheat paste for you. But, you know, if we want to make a new good internet, we should try to understand how the old good internet went wrong. And the same profit motive that was present today was present in those years in which Google was a much better service. And for that, we have to look at what disciplines companies, what disciplines companies from Facebook to Google to Microsoft and other companies in between, including Apple. And the forces that normally discipline companies in capitalism are competition and regulation, right? So companies are worried that you as the customer will defect somewhere else. And they're worried that the regulator who is accountable to you in a democracy will come and punish them. And there's a kind of equilibrium where the expected loss to competitors and the expected loss to regulatory punishments has to exceed the expected gains from treating you badly before a rational company will go ahead and do it. And, you know, of course, not every company is rational, but if they aren't rational, then, you know, if there are competitors, you can go somewhere else. Now, in tech, there's actually a couple of other important regulating forces or disciplining forces. Because tech had a tight labor market, tech workers themselves, even though they had very low union density, had the kind of power within the firm that we often associate with workplace democracy and unionization because tech workers could go somewhere else 
if their bosses asked them to do something they thought was foolish or wicked, and it wasn't easy to replace them. And so the moral injury of having something that mattered to you made worse for the people that you built it for actually had consequences for the employers because they had to worry about their employees going somewhere else. Now, there's another force that disciplined tech companies, and that has to do with something that is genuinely exceptional about tech. And I think tech exceptionalism is mostly wrong, but there are a couple of ways in which tech exceptionalism makes sense. And one is that as a technical matter, digital computers have this characteristic of what computer scientists call universality. And that's because the only computer we know how to build is able to run every program that is valid. No one knows how to make a computer that can only run some programs, but not others. That's why sometimes you hear about these like exotic viruses that infect, say, a printer, because nobody knows how to make a printer whose computer in the center of it can only run the program that sprays ink on paper. It can run all the programs, including, you know, the virus. And so every computer can run every program. And that means that you can always write a program that does things that are positive for users and worse for manufacturers. And that meant that manufacturers and service providers always had to contend with this possibility of self-help. That if you did something that was bad to your users, that they would unilaterally modify the service, say by running an ad blocker. You know, more than half of all web users are now running ad blockers. And the risk of so alienating a user that they run an ad blocker is that you cease to be able to advertise to them altogether, right? So if you're sitting there at the boardroom table and saying, well, you know, we will realize 3% more revenue if we make our advertisements 50% more obnoxious. And someone says, oh, yes, but 5% of our users will greet that by installing an ad blocker. That means that not that you'll lose that 3% gain, but that they will never see another ad again for the rest of time. You'll lose 100% of the expected revenue from them. Then that acts as a check on the forces of companies, even very greedy ones. And the thing that's changed over the intervening years is on the one hand, the labor market for tech has gotten worse. You know, you just saw at the end of last year, Google laid off 12,000 skilled technical staff. And that was only just a couple of months after they did a stock buyback that would have paid for those employees' salaries for the next 27 years. And so they just don't care about their workers anymore and they don't have to listen to them anymore. And so the moral injury of having the work that you care about destroyed just doesn't matter to your boss anymore. And at the same time, as tech has become more concentrated and has been able to capture its regulators, they've been able to enact a kind of thicket of laws that typically lay people call IP law, but which is just this grab bag of tortious interference with contract and anti-circumvention and cybersecurity, just all these, these laws that you know are, are quite complicated and abstruse, but which ultimately just act as a force to prohibit you from modifying the technology that you use so that it benefits you instead of the shareholders. You know, you can think of an app as being just a web page wrapped in just enough IP to make it a crime to add a, an ad blocker to it. You know, if you reverse engineer that app, you have to start by removing the encryption that stops you from doing it. And that removal of encryption is a violation of section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998. And that's a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. You know, the crime is nominally violating the DMCA, but what it really amounts to is felony contempt of business model. You're just doing something that the shareholders disprefer 
that would have been legal until pretty recently. And when you unshackle companies from the discipline of regulation, of competition, of self-help by their users, and of worker action, you end up with a circumstance in which the worst impulses of people that are brought out by capitalism run absolutely amok. So this relates to something you refer to as interoperability. So tell us about interoperability and give us some examples of how interoperability would actually improve the services that these companies now control. So interoperability is one of these ideas that's all around us. And, you know, we don't really think about it for the same reason fish don't think about water. Interoperability just means that you can plug something made by one manufacturer into something made by another manufacturer. You can use anyone's dish soap in your dishwasher, anyone's shoelaces in your shoes, anyone's light bulbs fit in your light socket and so on. And interoperability, it's often a matter of standardization. So, you know, light bulb sockets, there's an actual standard for them. And so there's a like a learned society of electrical engineers who convened a meeting and stakeholders came and they argued about, you know, how the screw thread should work and what power should be delivered and so on. And if anyone obeys that standard, whatever they make will work in a light socket. And that standard allows for things that even the standards body didn't contemplate, that the manufacturer didn't contemplate. So so, you know, the cigarette lighter in your dashboard can work as a charger. You can go into a gas station and, you know, there'll be like a fishbowl of USB adapters for your cigarette lighter up at the point of sale for 50 cents a throw. No one who designed the cigarette lighter thought about this. USB didn't exist back then, but because there's a standard, you can just make something that works and you don't need permission from the car manufacturer. The car manufacturer doesn't get to sell you a cigarette lighter charger accessory that works with their car and prevent you from buying a third party one. If you buy that accessory from your manufacturer, it's because you choose to, because there's lots of other manufacturers that do it. And that interoperability, because of the universality of computers, is there on steroids. Because you can never make a computer that only runs programs that the shareholders approve of, you can always find someone who will give you a program the shareholders disapprove of that make your life better. You know, the program embedded in a third-party ink cartridge that causes your inkjet printer to use it so that you don't have to give HP $10,000 a gallon for ink. And what has happened in the intervening years is we've gotten laws making that kind of interoperability illegal. Whereas, you know, once Apple was free to reverse engineer Microsoft Office and make the iWork suite, today, if you were to do that to Apple, they would just like reduce you to radioactive rubble. And same with Facebook and, and their MySpace interoperability and so on. And so as a result, they can force you to choose between all the documents you've ever created in Microsoft Word and going to another vendor or all the friends you have on MySpace or going to Facebook. You can't get an a la carte option. You can only get a pre-fees option where taking advantage of one thing that you like about the service means taking all the things that you don't like about that service, where using an app means accepting the ads and the tracking. And so interoperability, if we were to restore it and we could do that in two ways, and we could do both of them. We don't have to choose which one we do. The first one is that we could legalize the kind of reverse engineering and unilateral modification that we used to do. At the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the charity I've worked for for a quarter of a century, we call it 
adversarial interoperability interoperability where you're you know enemies with a company that made it that's so hard to say that we just call it competitive compatibility or comcom so you could do it by legalizing comcom changing the laws so that that old form of interoperability that was once widespread and that all of today's winners depended on was once again possible and in addition to that you can do what they're starting to do in europe with the digital markets act where they're just telling companies like Facebook and Google and, and other giants, hey, you've got to adopt a standard that lets anyone plug into your service. So if people like each other but don't like Facebook or Twitter or any other service they think that they're stuck to, they can walk away from that service. They can go somewhere else, but they'll continue to be able to send messages to the people that they left behind until those people wise up and leave too. And if they never leave well, you'll they'll still be able to continue to interchange with them. And that means that you never have to make the hard choice and endure what economists call the switching costs of leaving behind something that you value and getting something that you'll value more. You can get the best of all worlds. That pre-feast menu can become a la carte. So implementing what you call competitive compatibility or ComCom, you say that they're working on that in Europe. I take it that they haven't actually established that yet. And is there a movement to make that happen here in this country? Yeah. So for clarity, what they're doing in Europe are mandates, which are complementary to, but not the same as ComCom. So a mandate just says you must obey this standard. So, you know, you can think of, say, a building code. We just redid our kitchen. And, you know, when the inspector came, he said, you need more electrical outlets. You need, you know, we, we've now got a rule that says that people who make kitchen appliances have to keep the uh, cords really short because people were tripping on them and there was an electrocution hazard. But now we need, we want every kitchen to have more electrical outlets in it because we don't want people to have a bunch of extension cords in their kitchen. That kind of defeats the purpose of making the cord shorter. And so that's what a mandate looks like. And in Europe, they're saying you must adopt interoperability. And they're doing it on a service-by-service service basis. In the UK, there's a bill before Parliament to give enforcement powers to something called the Digital Markets Unit, which is the digital side of their competition regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, that will allow them to force tech companies to do this. So similar kinds of things. So we have ComCom and we have Interop popping up all around the world in that way. In terms of what's happening here in the U.S., there have been bills. In the, in the last session of Congress, there was a law called the Access Act that would have forced tech companies to open up their platforms, companies like Google and Facebook and Apple, and to allow third parties to plug into them so that a co-op owned by users or a small business or a startup or a community group could make its own app store or social media service or what have you, and the people on it could be connected to those larger dominant platforms, that bill might come back in the next congressional session. There are other bills to break up big tech that are moving through Congress now. And one of the interesting things about this move to tame big tech by making it smaller rather than by making it bigger, which is, you know, I think a lot of the proposals that we've had until now were like, hey, big tech, you need to get so big that you can prevent the harassment that's endemic on your platform. And you need to spy on every user to make sure they're not harassing other users. And you're going to need to arbitrarily disconnect users you suspect of harassment, all of which is just making them more powerful, not less. There's now this real consensus that we need to make tech companies less powerful. And there are laws like this in the European Union, the UK, Australia, Canada, and even in China, the cyberspace directive is going a long way to doing this. So it's, a, it's quite an exciting moment. And in the US Congress, 
it's not just a Democrat thing. It's quite bipartisan. I think actually, if you're someone who doesn't follow this, you might not realize how bipartisan it is. There's a bill in the Senate called the America Act, which would break up Google and Facebook and force them to sell off most of their ad tech holdings. And the two main sponsors of that law are Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz. I mean, that is a pretty bipartisan law, and it's amazing to see it happening. In terms of getting ComCom, you know, the, the right to tinker and reverse engineer and unilaterally modify these services, that's a lot further off, and it, it's going to require modifying a lot of laws, copyright, patent, trademark, information security, you know, contract, and so on. But there are ways that we can make really big leaps here. And one of the big ones is to change the way governments do procurement. Because right now, governments are one of the biggest customers for tech giants. And as a matter of just sort of prudent public administration, it would make a lot of sense for them to say, hey, if you want to sell us something, you have to promise that you won't sue or harass third parties who make add-ons for it that we might want to buy. And so as a condition of, of selling to us, you have to immunize third parties who might improve the products we buy from you. You know, if we buy your car for our motor pool, you can't punish independent mechanics who make tools that can diagnose and fix that car because we're not going to be dependent on you to do this. Now, this is an idea with a really long history in public administration. You know, when Lincoln was buying rifles for the Union Army, he insisted that the armorers use standard tooling and ammunition because, you know, It'd be pretty embarrassing to be the commander in chief and have to go to Gettysburg and say like, sorry, boys, battles canceled this week. You know, our sole supplier is no longer making bullets for this gun and we're going to have to find someone else to do it. But we're worried that they might hit them with a patent suit if they try. Right. And so this is just good administration and we could apply it to every phone that we buy for a government employee, every copy of Google Classroom we buy for a school every car we buy for a government motor pool, every part we buy for any kind of government computer in order to make sure that that market exists. And once it exists, it'd be very hard to keep it from leaking into the rest of the market. And so you and I would be able to enjoy it as well. So these laws that prevent interoperability, they actually prevent innovation. They prevent good ideas and the evolution of useful technologies. And you also say that if we're unable to tame this kind of big tech monopolistic behavior, we actually won't be able to effectively deal with critical issues like climate change and things like gender equality and other issues that are important to us. Yeah. You know, I mentioned that I don't have a lot of time for tech exceptionalism, except for two kinds of tech exceptionalism. And one of them is the idea that computers are universal. And so we can, we can do things with them that we can't do with other kinds of technologies when we regulate them. And the other one is that while computers aren't more important than say, averting the climate catastrophe and making sure we have a planet that is habitable by human beings or dealing with racial and gender and sexuality discrimination or inequality, that, you know, the internet and digital tools, they're the battlefield we're going to fight that fight on. And like I say, you know, if you've never been out there with a bucket of wheat paste and a stack of Xerox flyers, you don't know how hard it is to organize a mass movement unless you have these digital tools. And indeed, you know, a lot of what we worry about when we worry about digital technology is the formation of harmful mass movements. You know, the, the one of the things that the internet is extremely good at is having people who hold minority viewpoints locate one another 
and then mobilize together to take action. And, you know, I'm very much in favor of that when that's the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. But I have to acknowledge that the same thing is going on when the 300 odd weirdos in America who, you know, burned to march through the streets of Charlottesville and Civil War drag chanting Jews will not replace us are able to find each other, too. And, you know, if we abandon the idea of a free, fair and open Internet to those people and the forces for whom they constitute kind of useful idiots and turkeys who will vote for Christmas, then they continue to enjoy those organizational benefits and we are fenced out of them. I don't quite understand how that benefits those people, but locks us out at the same time. Well, if we don't, if there is no reform. So if all of the tech platforms are owned by the likes of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, and we are not able to organize democratically controlled tech platforms and to help our comrades and friends and loved ones who are stuck on those platforms by the collective action problem of wanting to go, but not wanting to leave behind the people who matter to them there, then what we end up with is a world where far-right elements continue to enjoy the benefits of Twitter and Facebook to organize hate movements, but where everyone else is hamstrung because we're stuck on these platforms that are so antithetical to countering that kind of online hate. And so it's really important that we not abandon the field, right? But that rather, as the subtitle goes, that we seize the means of computation, that we create the systems that make it easy for people who are stuck on these services for good reasons, you know, those good reasons being that the people that they love are there, the support group for the people who have their rare disease is there, the family members they left behind in the country they migrated from are there. We need to make it easy for them to leave so that they can continue to enjoy the benefits of digital services, which is the ability to locate other people who have the same views as you and organize for collective action, but not the costs of being stuck on these platforms that are so hostile to human thriving. Yeah, so I, I loved the way you described Facebook as a mutual hostage-taking situation. And you also say that most users love and hate Facebook. So. Could you give an example of how interoperability would actually work to improve the experience we could have with Facebook? Yeah. So lots of people want to leave Facebook, but they can't bring themselves to leave it. And this is where a lot of the story that we have about Facebook being addictive comes from. I don't really think it's addictive. I think that there's a much more straightforward, materialistic explanation for why we say to ourselves, God, I hate Facebook, but I can't bring myself to leave it. And it's because it's where, you know, the other parents on your kids' little league team are organizing the carpool and it's how you're talking to your customers and it's how you're connected to your high school friends. And you just love those people more than you hate Facebook. And even though they may hate Facebook, they love you more than they hate Facebook. So they stick around too. And that's the mutual hostage taking. Now, imagine that we had what Facebook had in its early days. Imagine that it was possible for you to leave Facebook, but continue to send messages to those people. So you could say set up on Mastodon. And the number one complaint, people who've left Facebook or Twitter for Mastodon, which is, you know, functionally very similar to those services, just a place where you see short messages in a row from people you follow. But they say, well, the problem is that the people I want to talk to aren't here. And of course, that's why those people haven't come, because the people they want to talk to aren't there either. And you all have this collective action problem you're, you're suffering under. But if Facebook was required to operate a gateway so that when you left Facebook, the people who matter to you on, on Facebook 
when they sent a message to you, when they tagged you, when they posted an update, you saw it and vice versa. So that for everyone, it's effectively invisible which service you're using. Just like if you switch from T-Mobile to Verizon, your friends don't know. They don't care. They don't have to care. You're on Verizon. They're on T-Mobile. When they call you, your phone rings. When they send you a text, you get it. It just works. So imagine if there was that same portability for Facebook and Facebook was legally required to support it. And that unlike Facebook back when it was competing with MySpace and saying, hey, come join Facebook. We're the privacy forward alternative to MySpace and we'll never spy on you. Imagine if we had as a backstop for those promises, privacy law, because that's really something else that, that the book advocates for and that we're so far behind on in this country. So the last time America updated its privacy law in a really serious way was back in the year of that judge I mentioned, Robert Bork and the, the change in antitrust law. So during Robert Bork's confirmation hearing, someone leaked his video rental habits to a newspaper in Washington, a free sheet, and this spooked the heck out of Congress. And they were worried that their like porn rental habits from Blockbuster were going to get leaked. And so they passed a law making it illegal to leak someone's video rental habits. And that is the last broadly applicable privacy law that was ever passed in America. You know, since then we had HIPAA for medical data and we had COPPA for children's data, but we do not have a broadly applicable privacy law that applies to everyone in lots of ways. That's it, right? So that's how far behind we are a quarter century into the, you know, public civilian internet where surveillance is ubiquitous. That, that's how far we are behind. So what if we had an actual privacy law so that if you went to a Mastodon server and left Facebook, not only could you be sure that the data that Facebook was sending to that server, the data that your friends were transmitting to that server wasn't being abused so that they could with confidence send the data to you and, and know that you've left Facebook, but they could continue to communicate with you. But also that down the road, they couldn't pull the rug on you and do what Facebook did and say, you know, yeah, we, we told you that we were going to respect your privacy, but, you know, you didn't take that seriously, did you? I sometimes call this the Darth Vader MBA, you know, uh, I've altered the deal, pray I don't alter it further. And when we could just make those guarantees not contingent on the goodwill of people in a boardroom, but on the enforcement capacity of civil servants who are well-funded in a good public agency. Wow. I think most people have no idea of how all of this stuff is going on in the background. It's kind of like the water that the fish are swimming in without any understanding of how things are, have been stacked up against us. So with that in mind, and to talk about regulation issues, could you talk about, I think it's called the nutsack affair, to help us understand the challenges of creating effective, good faith regulation? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of regulatory nihilism because regulatory capture is, is real and terrible. And when we see regulatory capture in the wild, it's tempting to think that no regulation can ever work because companies will always outmaneuver the regulators who are involved. And in tech, there's a, 
an especially kind of self-serving narrative that tech moves so fast and it's so technical that regulators just can't keep up. And it's really clear that it's possible to make good regulation, right? Like, you know, I am sitting in a building right now whose roof hasn't fallen down. And that's not because, you know, the engineering firm that designed this building self-regulated. There is a public safety code and it, you know, it is possible to find out what the truth should be about how to build a roof so that it doesn't fall on the head of the people who the roof is on top of. And so we have to ask ourselves, where does regulatory capture come from? Is it just the individual failings of regulators? Is regulatory capture what happens when you've got a single venal regulator who is up for sale and then you've got an immoral vendor who figures that out and offers them the right price and then you end up with you know lead in the water supply or is there something systemic that's going on here and and you know won't shock you to learn that i believe that this is a systemic issue and that it springs out of monopoly that when there's a small number of companies in a sector it's really easy for them to get together and agree on what they're going to tell congress or an administrative agency or a judge, and you never get any disconfirming evidence in the record from someone who's quite credible. You know, when there's only like three or four cable and phone companies in America, every time the FCC has a hearing on network neutrality, everyone they hear from who's got, you know, more than a million customers is just saying, oh, network neutrality is impossible. And, you know, don't make us do it because it won't work technically. And that's because there's just so few companies that they're able to sing with one voice. And if you remember, you know, the Napster Wars, there was this era where like tech, which was like a full order of magnitude bigger than the entertainment sector, had circles run around them by the entertainment sector. And that was because the entertainment sector was like seven giant movie studios and six giant record labels. Now it's like four giant movie studios and three giant record labels. And they just all sung with one voice. And tech was this squabbling rabble of hundreds of companies that had a whole variety of positions. And it made it hard for them to get regulation that was favorable to them. So to see this happen in real time, to see a monopoly actually co-opt and corrupt the regulatory process, even when you have a good regulator, you can look at the early part of this century in the United Kingdom where I was living. And there was a guy who was the drug czar of one of the parliaments. His name was David Nutt, and he was the lead regulator of drugs of all kind, including alcohol in the United Kingdom. He's a psychopharmacologist, very eminent fellow, very smart. He's got a great podcast. And Nutt was very concerned with the alcohol industry. Now, alcohol is also a very concentrated sector. About two companies make most of the beer that you would drink, and two other companies make most of the spirits that you'll drink, distilled beverages you drink. And they are super concentrated, and by their own reckoning and their own shareholder disclosures, in the United Kingdom, the difference between profit and loss for them is the alcohol consumed by binge drinkers who drink in unhealthy ways. And so if binge drinking were eliminated in the United Kingdom, these guys would not be making a profit. But they all say that they think binge drinking is a problem that they want to stamp out. They don't like binge drinking, they insist. You know, if you've ever seen a booze ad that ends with drink responsibly, you know, or consume responsibly or enjoy responsibly, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And so the United Kingdom, you know, having this problem with binge drinking and, and a national health service that pays for it, you know, even if you don't care about the lives ruined by it, you might care about the fiscal cost of having the health system tied up with the health problems of binge drinkers. They have an official policy of discouraging and eliminating binge drinking. And so they left it to the drinks industry to come up with their own self-regulated curriculum 
to try and train young people not to binge drink. And this was an absolute failure. And the position of the drinks industry was that this was a failure, not because they designed a bad curriculum, but because it's just very hard to convince people not to binge drink. Binge drinkers are gonna binge drink no matter what you tell them. So David Nutt, when he took office, he was like, well, let's empirically test this. So he designed his own anti-binge drinking curriculum and he created a randomized trial where some audiences were given the drinks industry's anti-binge drinking curriculum and other audiences were given his. And it turned out that the audiences that got his anti-binge drinking curriculum they did really well. They stopped binge drinking. They took the message to heart. It really worked for them. And so David Nutt was making ready to mandate this. Now, David Nutt, this wasn't his only work that he did. He did lots of other great work on drugs policy. So for example, he was put in charge of a review of the scheduling of all narcotics. So, you know, we're familiar in this country with Schedule A narcotics and Schedule B narcotics and so on. Some drugs are available in medical contexts. Some drugs are not regulated at all. Some drugs you can only have if you're over 21, like alcohol and so on. And so he was charged with a review of this. And he gathered a panel of experts and he said, I want you to evaluate for each of the drugs that we have scheduled, the degree to which they are harmful to the people who use them harmful to their families and harmful to our wider society. And from that expert panel, he got these numeric ratings and he was able to show that for some drugs, no matter how you weighted them, right, whether you cared about harm to yourself, harm to your family or harm to society, they were either mostly harmless or very harmful. And so where they should fit in the schedule was very obvious. But there were a lot of other drugs where the priority of harm whether you worried more about harm to the individual, harm to the family, or harm to wider society, that that really changed their ranking and therefore which schedule they should have. And he went to parliament and he said, you tell me what these priorities are. That's not an empirical question, whether we care more about harm to yourself, harm to your family, or harm to society. That is a political question. But once you tell me how you prioritize those issues, I will tell you empirically where each drug is going to go. And on that basis, he said, for example, that cannabis was a lot less harmful than alcohol. Now, there's a funny bit in his book, which is called Drugs Policy Without the Hot Air, where he recounts the Secretary of State, Jackie Smith, calling him and saying, you can't compare cannabis to alcohol. And he says, well, why not? And she says, well, because cannabis is illegal. And he says, well, why is cannabis illegal? And she says, well, because it's harmful. And he says, but it's not as harmful as alcohol. And she says, you can't compare cannabis to alcohol. And he says, why not? And she says, well, because it's illegal and goes around and around. So here you have this guy who's making a real enemy of the alcohol industry, but doing a really good job at regulating drugs, which is his job. And the alcohol industry used his refusal to walk back those cannabis remarks which they characterize as the drugs are advocating for the consumption of illegal drugs to get him fired. That was the nutsack affair. And as a result, they never had to adopt his curriculum against binge drinking, which would have actually eliminated or, or significantly curbed binge drinking in the kingdom, spared many people from misery and saved money for the NHS, but also would have eroded their profit center, which was where they made all their money. And that is the nutsack affair. And it tells you that it is possible for us to make good regulation. It's possible for us to know what the best way or a better way or a good way to do things is, but that in the presence of monopolies, it's almost impossible 
to make that stick. And that's actually very similar to how non-interoperability and anti-circumvention laws actually harm the global South. Yeah. So in 1998, Bill Clinton signed this law, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. And the DMCA has this provision, Section 1201, that makes it a crime to bypass what's called a technical access measure. So broadly speaking, it's a crime to break open a device's software and change it, even if you don't break any law. And originally this was used to like make sure that you didn't modify your DVD player so that it could play discs that you bought more cheaply in India, say, or Mexico. But it's come to be used very widely in all kinds of devices. So, you know, your car's engine has these digital locks in it that stop independent mechanics from performing diagnostics on them and stop third-party manufacturers from making their own diagnostic tools that would allow independent mechanics to fix your car. This is where we get the right to repair fight from. And these laws have been crammed down the throats of countries all over the global south, mostly by the U.S. trade representative, that basically makes adopting a law like this a condition of trading with the United States. And, you know, I used to lecture at a international policy doctoral program at the Central European University in Budapest back before the fascist Viktor Orban eliminated it. And I once had a grad student there who told me this story about how she was called up by their trade representative. She was from a Latin American nation. She was called up by their trade representative who said, you know, the U.S. is saying that if we don't give them anti-circumvention, they won't take our soybeans. And she said, don't give them anti-circumvention. That's really important to us because we need to be able to adapt the technology that we buy from rich countries so that it fits our domestic needs. And they said, it's too late. We've already signed it away. Soybeans are too important. And so all over the world, you have these requirements that you use very specific consumables or parts or service technicians or that the data that your device generates can only be accessed if you pay for it. So, you know, your John Deere tractor only lets you see the data that's generated by its sensors when you drive it around your field that, you know, use uh, torque sensors in the wheels and humidity sensors in the undercarriage to determine, you know, what the soil conditions are and to help you with precision agriculture. And you can only get that on terms set by John Deere. And if, at one point, John Deere would only let you have that data if you bought it along with seed from Monsanto because they had an exclusive arrangement with Monsanto. You know, that's the kind of rotten stuff that happens. And it's bad enough in the global north, but, you know, in the global south, there are all kinds of contingencies that are just not considered in the global north, that are just not in the frame. And, you know, it was only during the acute phase of the COVID pandemic that we started to see countries in the rich world find out what it was like to be in the poor world, what it was like to not have internet access or not be able to get a technician out to perform an authorized repair. And, you know, one very sharp edged example of that is a company called Medtronic. Medtronic is the world's largest medical device manufacturer. They also undertook the largest tax inversion in history, relocating at least nominally to Ireland so that they would never have to pay tax again because of loopholes in the Irish tax law. And Medtronic has this booby trap that they build into their ventilators. They're the world's leading ventilator manufacturer. And it means that if you perform a repair on a Medtronic ventilator, 
like say you have a Medtronic ventilator that works, but the screen is busted and you have another Medtronic ventilator that is busted, but it has a working screen and you swap one into the other. You then have to have a Medtronic technician come to your hospital and type an unlock code into the Medtronic device's keyboard in order to activate that repair. And of course, during the acute phase of the COVID pandemic, technicians weren't able to visit those hospitals. And so you had technicians desperately trying to keep their ventilators running. And you had those ventilator repairs failing, not because they didn't want to pay ransom to Medtronic to come and bless the repair they'd made, but because Medtronic couldn't take their money because they couldn't get a technician out to these hospitals. And it was only because a Polish Medtronic technician, an ex-Medtronic technician, built a little gadget that would automatically generate these unlock codes illegally, risking criminal and civil liability, and then anonymously started mailing these gadgets that he was housing whatever cases he could find, guitar pedals and clock radios and lamp housings and so on, and started mailing them to hospitals so they could affect these repairs. It was only because of that that hospitals were able to keep their ventilators running. And so you start to see what life is like all the time for countries in the global south. You know, people in the global south are not well represented in the room when large tech manufacturers, especially in Silicon Valley, are planning their products. And because they don't get a look in while those products are being planned, they are more apt than most to find themselves needing to do something that the manufacturer never contemplated. And if their lawmakers, if their trade representatives have signed away the right to make those modifications, well, then they're out of luck. And this is something that U.S. firms have put a lot of energy into making sure trade representatives sign away. And the U.S. government has been their willing and complicit ally. Mm. So could you give us an example of one of your favorite interoperable apps and how they fare in this monopolistic landscape? Yeah, there's a really cool one. And, you know, all these stories are sad stories because they always end with, and then they were legally forced to shut down. But there was a really cool one called OG app, and it was an alternative client for Instagram. And the way that it worked is you gave it your Instagram login and password, and then it would go to Instagram and pretend to be you and get all of the things that Instagram wanted to show you. And it would throw away all the suggestions and all the ads so that all that was left were updates from people you followed. And then it would just show you those in chronological order. And people loved it. And they downloaded it in vast numbers. And within a week, Meta had shut it down. They had insisted that Apple remove it from the App Store and that Google remove it from their App Store. And because there is solidarity among monopolists, both of those companies that control between them 100% of mobile apps had shut down. OG app and OG app went out of business. So, I mean, that was pretty cool, right? It was like being able to travel into a parallel dimension where Facebook was never able to introduce anti-features into Instagram, where they had to maintain all the reasons that people had joined Instagram in the first place. And you got to kind of briefly inhabit just, just a better world. So again, how can we change all of that? Well, I think we have to think about this not as a set of individual actions or choices, but as a bunch of policy and systemic choices, right? These are policies that produce this outcome. 
And the way that individuals change policy is not by like shopping better or making better individual choices, but by demanding better as part of a polity. And there are lots of opportunities for that. You know, I mentioned I work for this nonprofit, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You know, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that, you know, we're donor supported and so on, but also that we have this thing called the Electronic Frontier Alliance, which is a network of community groups that work on these issues. There is something in the air right now, and it's bipartisan and it's global, that is demanding this kind of action all over the place. There are a lot of people who are really angry about what's happened with tech. And when these crises arise, there is always an opportunity for change. Crisis precipitates change. But we tend to have some pretty poor ideas for what we should do in these times of crisis. That We tend to have ideas that boil down to making it easier to make individual choices about your privacy, say, like a rule that requires a company to tell you how they're abusing your privacy, which means that you just end up with these cookie consent dialogues that say, you know, we value your choice. So, you know, here's 50,000 words of nonsense and you either click I agree or you don't get to talk to your friends anymore. And really what we need and what we should be demanding when crisis arises is just the right to know that if we're using a service that they're not abusing our data at all. We should, you know, in the same way that you don't have to read all the fine print when you book a restaurant reservation to make sure that they're not going to, you know, roofie you and and then uh, take your kidneys out. You shouldn't have to read all the fine print to know that you're not going to get abused. We should just have a better privacy law. And so to get that, you have to think of yourself as a part of a polity, not as an individual making purchase choices. And a lot of that comes down to having in our discourse better ideas for what to do when the crisis strikes. Because so many of our ideas have been grounded in this kind of neoliberal idea of individual choice and individual you know, responsibility rather than systemic change, we've really you know, had this impoverished policy dialogue and every crisis just ends up with us doing the same thing we did last time, but harder. You know, everyone should have an arch nemesis. And mine is a guy called Milton Friedman, who is kind of the court sorcerer to Ronald Reagan. He was the guy who really gave us the neoliberal revolution. And Milton Friedman, he was a very weird guy because, you know, he looked at all the shared prosperity that we got from the New Deal. And rather than saying, as some people said, hey, it'd be nice if this like were available to more than just white guys. And we we had a civil rights movement and a gender justice movement and an indigenous justice movement and a crip rights movement and so on. He was like, no, this has gone too far. We need to take this away from people. And people would say like, Milton, you know, the thing you got to understand is that people like the idea of like a dignified retirement and, you know, their kids going to university and whatever. How are you ever going to convince them to go back to those dark ages. Like no one wants to be a forelock tugging pleb anymore. And he would say, in times of crisis, ideas lying around can move from the periphery to the center in an eye blink. Our job is to keep ideas lying around until the impossible becomes the inevitable. And you know, he was right about this. You know, we are living in Milton Friedman's world. And I think that we underestimate the power of good ideas lying around. If we are really exploring these shovel-ready ideas, and that's really what this book is about, is, is not just delivering analysis, but like really creating detailed technical proposals that are administratable and that are laid out in words small enough for federal legislators to understand. And if we have those ideas lying around, if every time we hit a crisis, we say, well, if we 
just had an interoperability mandate, people would be able to leave this service that's on fire rather than being stuck in it and, and not able to go, then you know we would have a much better chance of turning that next crisis into something better. So earlier you said that that there is actually bipartisan support for this kind of a movement. Yeah. I think that it comes from different places. I mean, one thing to understand about any two-party system is that both parties are always going to be a coalition. And, you know, you can think of uh, the various different entities that make up the Democratic Party, but there are also lots of different entities that make up the Republican Party. And I think that within those coalitions, there are different reasons that different entities favor breaking up big tech. And, you know, part of the conservative coalition doesn't like big tech because they are uh, it's even hard to know what to call them, but I guess they're like weird traditionalists who are anti-monopoly, not because they believe in workers' rights per se, but because they like want a single breadwinner household again. And they're like, if corporations are able to run roughshod over their workers, then you lose the labor guarantees that allow one man to earn an income for the whole household. And so you get some favor for antitrust there. You get other elements of the right that are like, we don't like big tech because we think we're being shadow banned. You know, our culture warriors are being sidelined by big tech, which is, you know, also a very weird posture, but you know, I'll take it if I can get it. You have other ones that are angry because they see these companies as being responsive to worker pressure on social justice issue. And they say, oh, you're a woke company, so we have to make an example out of you. And whatever those reasons, you know, we should definitely be suspicious of support from quarters that comes from principles other than our own, because, you know, they might declare victory before we're ready to. You know, uh, Riley Quinn, who, who hosts the wonderful Trash Future podcast, says that just like a lot of meetings in progressive circles open with a, a stolen land acknowledgement, you know, where you say, well, we're, this is a land that was never ceded and it's owned by a First Nations, that there are lots and lots of conservative culture warriors who'd be really happy, you know, if the outcome of all of this was just that, like, every Facebook board meeting opened with a stolen likes acknowledgement where, you know, they just acknowledge that they built their fortune on the uh, shadow ban stolen likes of hardworking culture warriors. And, you know, they might be willing to declare victory at that point, and that would still be far from victory for us. But if we can march in the same direction as them for a while, you know, I'll take it. You know, one of the proponents of strong labor movement in order to create single household so-called traditional families has said, you know, look, I'm happy to welcome liberals who want a strong labor movement because they don't like gender discrimination in the workplace, leftists who want a strong labor movement because they see it as the origin of a transformative change in our system of governance, and traditionalists like me who want single family households. Maybe we can all build a coalition that gets us strong labor rights. And if that's what it takes, then let's get there. And we'll then we'll argue about what to do with those strong labor rights afterwards. And, you know, I'm not saying we need to like make common cause with actual fascists, but, you know, I'll take my wins where I can get them. Well, they've always said that politics makes strange bedfellows. It certainly does. And, you know, that when people are, you know, nostalgic for bipartisanship in D.C., this is the part that they actually mean. It's not, you know, going out for drinks with someone who's like an odious creep who wants to take away women's rights and force them to give birth. It's being able to, despite that profound, unbridgeable gap, work together on legislation to, you know, 
send aid to stricken households during the COVID pandemic and, you know, make sure that everyone can afford to pay their rent. You know, like that part of bipartisanship is actually quite good and it's actually necessary. And you can think of it as being an extension of the bipartisanship within the intra-party coalitions where you know, I am not a fan of the guy who's running the Democratic Party right now. I, I'm a Canadian, but I became a U.S. citizen just in time to legally make donations to the Democratic Party in last election cycle. And I gave money to a bunch of candidates, none of whom were the guy who became the candidate. But the fact that he worked with some of the candidates I liked through the Unity Coalition to make appointments that really matter, like Lena Kahn, who's running the Federal Trade Commission, and Rohit Chopra is running the Consumer Finance Protection Board, and Jennifer Abruzzo is the General Counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, all of whom are just kicking ass for working people. You know, that's fine, right? That is, that is a coalition politics. That is a bipartisanship that I will take any day, all day long. So at this point, um, do you have the time and an interest in talking about your newer book, The Lost Cause? Yeah, of course. I'm really happy to. Unfortunately, since I just found out about it this past week, I haven't read it, but it's an interesting premise being set 30 years in the future, dealing with the devastating effects of climate change in the future. So could you talk about your, your vision of the near future? Sure. Yeah. So the book is called The Lost Cause. It's got a lot of early fans. So Bill McKibben and Kim Stanley Robinson and Naomi Klein and Rebecca Solnit have all said nice things about it. And as of this week, it's also a, a national bestseller. It just hit the USA Today list. And as you say, it's set in the relatively near future, about a generation into a transformation, a, a Green New Deal that comes about as the result of a bunch of very contingent things. And I think that any big change in our politics is always contingent. It's the right people being in the right place at the right time when the opportunity arises. And you now have a generation of people who, even though they're living through this absolutely dire climate emergency, are not afraid the way we are. In fact, they call themselves the first generation in a century that doesn't fear the future. And the reason they're not afraid, is not because the emergency isn't real, but because they're finally doing something about it. They're taking it as seriously as it deserves to be taken. They're relocating entire coastal cities inland. They are weatherizing, solarizing. They're building the energy infrastructure. You know, my friend Deb Chakra has got a great book out this month called How Infrastructure Works. She points out as a material scientist that if we could capture just 0.4% of the solar radiation that reaches the Earth's surface, we could give everyone on Earth the energy budget of a Canadian, which is like the energy budget of an American, but colder. And, you know, this is an amazing vision. And so they are finally in an environment where instead of just waiting for the market to rearrange our consumption of materials to give us a future in which we have the abundant energy that we need to really start to lean into the climate emergency, we have instead non-market methods that step in where the market is failing and that save us and give us a plausible chance of weathering this poly crisis that we're in. And so as this is chugging along and as the protagonist, who's a young man who's about to graduate from high school and go off and join this civilian corps and work on these issues, as this is going on, there's a counter-revolution too. Because, you know, the losers of a just revolution, they don't dig a hole and climb inside and pull the dirt down in on top of themselves. They continue to kind of seethe and fester and look for opportunities to come back. And so every reformation has to fend off counter-reformations. And that's hard because if you're 
a movement that was built on challenging the status quo, it's very hard to transform yourselves into a force that maintains a new status quo that you've won and you're uniquely vulnerable. That's why so many revolutions fail so quickly. And this is set in that moment of counter-reformation when there's been a changeover in American politics and there's a new coalition against the Green New Deal who view what we're living through not as a moment of enormous relief from fear and from the precarity of, of not taking the climate emergency seriously. And instead, they see it as a folly, something that is going to you know, lead our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren to be in debt forever to pay for all of this muscular intervention to save our butts. And so this coalition consists of these billionaire wreckers who've moved offshore when we finally start taxing billionaires. They built a flotilla of you know surplus aircraft carriers and super yachts and you know other vehicles cruise ships when they circumnavigate the world's oceans over and over again trying to convince poor people to use bitcoin and then they have these useful idiots these turkeys that they've convinced to vote for christmas here in america which are white nationalist militias who are making the political war into a shooting war and you know the protagonist of the story and his friends the other people who are really devoting themselves to an intergenerational project of service and of remediation and care work they have to figure out what they're going to do now that they're living through this terrifying terrifying moment so some of the reviewers that you mentioned earlier actually described this as a hopeful book so what's hopeful about this vision well, look, I'm not much of an optimist, and I think optimism is overrated. I think optimism is just a kind of fatalism that says that no matter what we do, things are going to get better. Optimism is just, you know, kissing cousins with pessimism, you know, the idea that no matter what we do, things are going to get worse. But hope is the idea that even if we can't say away from here to where we want to be, that if we can try anything that materially improves our circumstances, that we will traverse the slope upwards towards the world that we want to live in and that we will attain a new footing from which we might see new paths that were obscure to us back when we were at that lower stage. And that hope is therefore the idea that if you can see any way to make things even a little better, that you have room for action and you have your marching orders and you can do what comes next. And then maybe from there, you'll figure out what comes after that. And so this is a very hopeful book. And I think science fiction has it within itself to be a very hopeful literature. You know, the reactionary politics of our world really have its most proximate origins in the politics of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And Margaret Thatcher, who is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and sort of Britain's answer to Reagan, she used to say, there is no alternative. And it is the most anti-science fictional thing I can imagine anyone saying. Because, you know, I'm a science fiction writer. My job is to think of a half dozen alternatives before breakfast. But what she was doing when she said there is no alternative was she was trying to convince you to stop trying to think of an alternative. It was a kind of demand dressed up as an observation. And the very fact of trying to think of alternatives, that act itself is such a profound one because once you stop saying there is no alternative, then you open up the possibility for all kinds of alternatives, not just the one in the book, but every alternative that you and me and the other people who are our comrades and trying to rescue our species from this folly that we might think of. 
Yeah. And I realized while preparing for this interview that that's actually what I love most about science fiction is it it's it's a flowering of the mind, an opening of our minds to, you know, into the unknown realm of possibility that's beyond what we can envision at this point. Yeah, that's very well said. I completely agree. And while there are plenty of reactionaries within science fiction, I think that it is a radical imagination that sits at the core of this genre. It's why I love it so much. Mm. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, the pleasure is very mutual. Thank you very much. My guest has been Corey Doctorow. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an MIT Media Lab Research Associate, and visiting professor of computer science at The Open University. He's an award-winning New York Times bestselling novelist and the author of many, many books, including his latest two books that we've been talking about, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, and The Lost Cause, a novel of truth and reconciliation in our polarized future set 30 years in the future. Corey, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. And be well. You too. You get up and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. We no longer live in a world of nations. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business. And I have chosen you to preach this evangel. For all my free market healthcare, robbing stock, stealing retirement fund, little credit card scam and jewelry stealing selling liquor store robbing mother <laughs> shout to the homies carnegie og willie randolph hearst baruch rockefeller the real rockefeller my main leona bought a little louis the 13th scott rothstein jack abramoff hold your head my yeah. let's uh, get this money i am the one percent you know my CEO, corporate steez, please Overthrow governments overseas in a breeze Politicians in my pockets for a few hundred G's So if I'm ever in court, my assets are never free They don't want me indicted, cause they don't want my dirty laundry aired when I fight it Don't get my lawyers excited, cause what good is the law if you can't rewrite it? I got CIA traders, dictators, so f*** y'all whistleblowers and haters Invest money from Al Qaeda in the bank. 9/11 widows go too late to capitalism's who I pray to f the state of the world. Money talks, so what the f I need to say to you? I don't pay them. I pay them to leave. You know my CEO, corporate steez greed. I treat countries like the IMF down on your knees. Real gangsters run the world. Hey America, thanks for the bailouts. I made off like the banker Ambrosiano. Got away scot free like El Vaticano. Activists, activists get mad at me because I'm a tax free charity. 80% to the staff and company and 20% to the homeless and hungry. The country gotta pay the Fed Reserve. Kick back to the banks, haven't you learned? You protest cops and patrol.
flows on the street But I bought city hall so I own the police Email, Facebook, and the shit you tweet All the phone companies so I heard you speaking My suggestion is no correction, no elections But no affection, no invention To benefit the world, a man will exist Till I got the money in my hand World Bank, interest rate, damn On a spot, but I'm a gangster You gon' take my money like it or not your country in my pocket, mother. You know my CEO makes Sonic Steve's cheese. Only little people pay all these taxes and fees. Since you were born, we controlled what you watch and you read. And pretty soon we're gonna own the f air that you breathe. I take what I want. I don't have to say please. I convince you that it's good for you. Take it and leave. You think presidents are the face of a nation? I put them all. Conversation. <laughs> Introducing the new Apple Eye Person complete with multi-touch and volume control. Doesn't it feel good to touch? Doesn't it feel good to touch? Doesn't it feel good to touch? My world is so digital that I have forgotten what that feels like. It used to be hard to connect when friends formed cliques, but it's even more difficult to connect now that cliques form friends. But who am I to judge? I face Facebook more than books face me, hoping to book face to faces. I update my status, 420 space to prove I'm still breathing. Failure to do this daily means my whole web wide world will forget that I exist. But with 3,000 friends online, only five I can count in real life. Why wouldn't I spend more time in the world where there are more people that like me, wouldn't you? Here, it doesn't matter if I'm an amateur person as long as I have a pro. File, my smile is 50% genuine and 50% genuine HD. You would need Blu-rays to read the whites of my teeth, but I'm not that focused. 10 tabs open, hoping my problems can be resolved with a 1600 by 1700 revolution. This is a problem with this evolution doubled over. We used to sit in treetops till we swung down to stand upright and someone slipped a disc. Now we're doubled over at desktops. From the Garden of Eden to the branches of Macintosh, apple picking has always come at a great cost. iPod, iMac, iPhone, iChat, I can do all of these things without making eye contact. We used to sprint, we used to sprint to pick and store blackberries, now we run to the sprint store to pick blackberries, it's scary. I can't hear the sound of mother nature speaking over all that tweeting, and along with it is our ability to feel as it's fleeting. You would think these headphone jacks inject in the flesh the way we connect the disconnect power on, so we get powerless. They got us love drugged, like e-pills. So we e-trade, email, e-motion, like e-commerce, because now money can buy love for $9.95 a month. Click to proceed to checkout. Click to X out where our hearts once were. Click, I've uploaded this hug. I hope she gets it. Click, I'm making love to my wife. I hope she's logged in. Click, I'm holding my daughter over a Skype conference call while she's crying in the crib in the next room. Click, so when my phone goes off on my hip, I touch and I touch and I touch because in a world where there are voices that are only read and laughter is never heard, I'm so desperate to feel that I hope the technology can reverse the universe until the screen can touch me back. And maybe it will when our technology is advanced enough to make us human again. State of the world. 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 State of the world, check the conditions of man's mentality, war is a sign of the times. State of the world, death to the family, destroy the structure of morals, they poison us all. Light before our eyes, 